Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 52. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And it's good to be back with you again. We had a bit of a week off last week. It's getting we're going to get a bit tired as we get towards the end of the year. I think we might um, we might need, need uh, we're probably going to have a, have our big end of year break soon. How are you both doing? I'm doing wonderfully well, <laughs> and I'm doing fine, Liam. <laughs> well, I think we've uh, we've obviously Thanks. we're going to. Thank uh, you for asking. Oh, a pleasure, a pleasure. We we. We're not going to do a full news list again uh, this week, um, again, mainly through lack of any of us wanting to do too much research, but we will talk a bit about the ministers and secretaries. No, it's not that. It's just that the news is so depressing and so much the same. Oh, well, I was going to say, we're about yeah. to, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle the release of the ministers and secretaries rules for the new childcare package soon, but I think we should probably just quickly touch on the big general Australian news this week, which is obviously the pretty successful victory for the yes vote in Marriage equality. So I assume we're all pretty Yay! happy with that. Yay! Hooray! <laughs> does, Hooray. Anyone, does anyone want to disclose how their individual electorates went? All oh, right. Well, <laughs> oh, I actually raised this. I know, and you would not have had this information unless I had confessed it to you, Liam McNicholas. <laughs> However, yes, I will. I will tell you exactly what the percentage of um, yes votes in my area, which is the Hughes area, and uh, yes, we sit in the beautiful Sutherland Shire, 58%. And you, both of you, please come what forward. What was yours, Liam? I think mine got up to about 76%, didn't it? I think in no, the no, lovely no, no, 70%. 78. And Lisa? Mine was 79.9% because I live in one of the best electorates in Australia. Yeah, but, you know, it's it, yes, you do, but you're bordering on an electorate that said no. So I'm sorry, that's fine. Just a few yeah, streets a, away. And you it's weird. I never go there. That's like, that's strange territory. I also border on a, an electorate, Sydney, which got over 80%. So. Uh, yeah, well, um, maybe, yep. Anyway, yep. Yeah. Isn't it yep. great that we've made this defining moment for, you know, human rights and equality about us? <laughs> I think that's fantastic. <laughs> 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 yeah, sorry. Yes. Well, well, I mean, we've spoken about it before and I think that there were lots and lots of um, people in the early education sector who were very um, pronounced in their uh, in their feelings and and their opinions about a yes vote and good for them that they were advocates and that they did that because who knows who may have been swayed by the early childhood sector. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I just read um, a Good thing that, that said that, that Senator Wong says her daughter has been counting how many yes signs she sees each day and asks how many will we see each day. And we just really need to remember that this has affected, you know, lots of children in our centres who have same-sex families. Mm. Hmm. And that and that was the position that was put forward by Early Childhood Australia as well, and yep. um, a number of other peaks. So, yay for the early childhood sector for yes, well highlighting that it's about children as well. Absolutely. 
Um, so yes, before we get on to our main topic for this night, for tonight, we do want to just quickly touch on uh, the release of the ministers and secretaries' rules for the new childcare package. Now, for those who can cast their mind back to probably the first half of the year when we were mostly covering the Jobs for Families package, as it was known then, uh, this was one of our big concerns with the package. So the legislation passed, but the ministers and secretaries' rules, which are kind of a look, Lisa, you'd probably do a better job of, of sort of explaining what they are, but they're basically kind of like the detail of some of the specific parts of the package, particularly the childcare safety net and how specific things work uh, in relation to how services uh, interact with the, 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 the system. Is that kind of basically right? It's the nitty gritty, really. Yeah, it is the nitty gritty. And look, yeah, I actually don't understand why, like when in legislation there is ministers' rules and secretaries' rules and when everything is... Um, actually you know uh included in the in the actual regulations or the law itself so but, I'd but really... what's, the, what's the capacity for the minister ministers and secretaries rules to be changed oh like it's easy you know they've that's got to be why percent. and that's why it's there that's why it's there so that they can be so that they can be easily changed yeah, well, it's interesting that, that there was none in the first round of legislation and yet there is in, you know, around education and care and yet there is in this this um, in this lot. And I think it's kind of like a bit of the family daycare um, reaction so that when they discovered that they didn't actually have legislative power to close down some of the rotting family daycare services, um, they've decided to include all of this stuff into ministers' yeah. and secretaries' rules because it's easier. But it does give um, uh, bureaucracies, individual bureaucracies, a lot of power that they haven't already been, that they haven't had. And... Um, I saw this this week with one part of the uh, changes to the regulations that happened in October where it gives each of the state regulatory bodies the capacity to put a cap on the number of educators in family daycare services. And let's just say that some of those regulatory bodies um, appear to have let uh, you know, appear to be going a bit extreme with that amount of power that they've got in that setting. So I'm, you know, as so. Do you reckon that this democratic might be a bit process. of a trend? Do you think it's a trend, Lisa, in in kind of Plan B, just in case you need it? Uh, yeah, it could be. I'd be interested in knowing, you know, from a policy person more, you know, how often this happens in legislation, if this is unusual or if this is usual, you know, and and why they do it. And, you know, I know that they can be disallowed by Parliament, but I think by the time that um, they're going into a Parliament, then they're just kind of like more or less lip service, you know, approved. Certainly these were. They went in on... Friday and was straight away approved. So, mm. yeah. Mm. So does that so does that mean that everybody just needs to be aware of not just the legislation but also these little sneaky? <laughs> oh, I'm calling them sneaky. Maybe <clears throat> I don't think that 
that like you know i think well yes you do need to be aware of it to people at a service level need to be aware of it no you'll probably find it out more as it happens but it is the place where perhaps things that we weren't expecting to be you know um to be there can in fact be um, put through into the new um, uh, family assistance legislation. So, mm. yeah, well, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. It's one of those things where there's a lot of detail and a lot of complexity in there. And obviously, the system isn't starting until July next year. We would obviously recommend that people who uh, you know work in the sector, and particularly in leadership roles, this is something they'll kind of have to get their heads around. And I think, I guess, our homework might be, but <laughs> between this episode and next episode, we'll try and get our heads around them and provide a bit of an a bit of an overview probably next week. Am I promising too much if we can if we can have a think about that? I don't, I don't think there's anything in there that's too shocking or surprising, but I think there is things that are, that are significant changes from the system now that people may not be fully aware of and the things I would be getting people particularly to look at, even if you're just sort of having a, having a look through them uh, this week, would be the things around eligibility for the safety net, so when and how children can access... Uh, subsidised uh, enrolments, uh, that's going to be critical. Yep, for given, sure. Yeah, given that we know there's going to be children who will have far a far more challenging time accessing the system at all, that this is, you know, what the Education Department and the Minister Simon Birmingham keep saying, this is the safety net, this is what will make sure we get children into services, then I'm not convinced and I think that's something we'll, as a sector, we'll need to take really big note of. But We'll include links in the show notes and on our website to, to actually find the um, the documents themselves. They're actually quite tricky to find. They're not on the Education Department website, I don't think, are they, Lisa, where they'd be most useful? No, they're on the legislation website, yeah. Yeah, they might add them up later. But again, we'll, we'll add the link um, and hopefully we'll have we'll have a, either, either an episode or a bit of a mini discussion about them next week. That's our homework, you two. Are we happy to do that? Yeah, yep, for sure. Yes, Wonderful. yes All right, well, we'll have a very quick uh, little break and then be back with our main topic for the night, so stay with us. All right, welcome back. So we're here, we're going to be having a discussion that's, I don't know, maybe semi-controversial or at least we'll have some interesting viewpoints, I think, around it. So we're going to ask the question about early childhood education and care provision and who are the customers of this provision. So are there customers and, and, and who are they? And I guess this is a conversation has been swirling around probably even just amongst the three of us for a little while. I mean, I, I, for, for me, it's one of the things I've been thinking about. I, I wrote an article a little while ago about um, documentation apps and my concern that this was sort of this was this was built on the fundamental premise that you know the, the the parent was the primary recipient of the of the documentation and was therefore the primary customer of the service. But I know that you two have both been having uh, sort of parallel thoughts around the same uh, sort of. Topic. I mean, I know uh, Lisa, you you sort of floated this as a topic, and Leanne, I know you were in you were in big agreement. Lisa, why did you sort of want to tackle this as a big topic, particularly? Oh, look, it came out for me from a question from a preschool in New South Wales, and then it was explored a bit um, at a conference um, that, that I was invited to speak at in Canberra. And this particular preschool's issue was that a family had requested that the service change their policy 
on welcome to country because as committed Christians, they didn't believe that anybody could be thanked for the land other than God. And that service had to really, really work hard and get a lot of opinions in from a lot of people working out a way that they could, you know, um, deal with this family's concerns. <clears throat> and it just... And I'm, I read those kind of things come up a lot in, you know, like on um, Facebook web pages around the education and care sector where people make this comment that is, but the families are paying for the service, so therefore we can't do this or we have to do this because the families are paying for the service. And I just think that that's very, very scary territory yeah I, I, I agree and, and leanne when when we floated this as a topic on an email you were in furious agreement was there a particular reason you were so sort of fired up on this issue uh, yeah because i i think i mean i've had a couple of discussions with um actually not-for-profit provider boards with regard to who customers are and um the perspective that is coming through particularly from um a, you know, a, I don't like to say a non-early childhood perspective, but it is a perspective outside of early childhood, is that there's there for them the customer is the parent, um, and I question. I mean, yes, indeed, and I think those. I think the sort of discussions that that Lisa's having with those people who were talking about the families. I think that they're wonderful discussions regardless of who the customer is because they're because they're important critical discussions and there's you know obviously no right and wrong within that but when you push it back and say well in the school system who would we see as the customer I yeah. think pretty much everybody would say that the student is the customer although there's a there's, there are other customers or other kind of clients within that In, framework. Interestingly, I think that depends upon which sort of school it is. So maybe before yeah, well, we, that's, yeah, maybe just true. before we we get into some detail on some of these questions, we want to maybe let's let's start at that sort of first principle. So, I guess there are two questions I wanted to flick to to both of you. So. Are, are there customers in early childhood education and care as we understand it? And if so. Who are they? So maybe Lisa, do you want to have a have a think about that first, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts, Leanne. Look, I actually don't like the word customers because customer to me suggests that it's the financial. There's a financial relationship, and that's primary. You know, like I'm a customer when I go to my local corner shop and buy a product. You know, I'm clearly a customer in that setting. Whereas I think the um, uh, engaging a service to, um, you know, help, uh, like I don't put it this way. If I go to a school, if I go to a public school, I don't consider myself a customer there. I consider, um, uh, you know, they are doing a service for me. They are educating my child. And th for that reason, I don't see it's any different in education and care. There isn't actually customers, despite the exchange of money in the process. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. What do you, what do you reckon, Leanne? Um, well, I, I think that the the customer language is there. It's become it's 
there, of course, because of our policy settings around markets. And I think everything's become a market now. So that that word's there. So I guess in the context, I don't like it, but I'm, I guess we need to use it because that's the, the policy that we're currently in. Um, I'd prefer to use citizens, but, you know, that just seems kind of too... <laughs> that, that just seems too lefty, doesn't it? But um, strangely enough, it being there's being a whole citizens. range of terms from sort of corporate culture we use. What about internal and external stakeholders? The children could be the internal stakeholders in the building. Maybe families yeah. could be the external stakeholders. Well, I've never liked the word stakeholders. No, it's anyway. horrible, it reminds isn't it? me of kind of a no, sort of thing with, with, with you know stakes and all that sort of stuff. But but I I think it comes back for it always comes back for me to what education is for. And what's the purpose of it? Yeah. And then I think that that's where I kind of go a bit sort of deep into the, you know, what really are we aiming to achieve with education? And that shapes my view of the customer, so yeah. to speak. And so I, I always, for me, it's always the child. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other people who are involved in this transaction because it is a transaction, but um, there are. But if we have children as central to that relationship then that to me is where we're going to get it right even if it's a even if it's a market yeah i think um the i I agree with both of your points i don't have too much more to add the only thing the way i think about it is if we accept the premise that there is a customer involved in this situation then that means there's a product so Mm. what's the product of. An educated child. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, that's the only answer that doesn't make me slightly icky, although it still slightly does, because I'm not sure how you define what an education, educa- educated child is the end of a process. But I I don't believe, I, 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 just, I disagree with the construct, because I don't think we're not, uh, we're in the system we're in, which is a market-based model for this, but I don't, but I don't think there's a product. I don't think there's a product involved in this, so I'm not sure how there can be customers if there isn't a product. That's yeah, my slightly and it's, and yeah, and I guess no, but I, well, and I think that 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 is that purpose stuff, isn't it? What what's education for? Why and and what what is the purpose of it? Which takes it away from being a product, sort of mm. sometimes. Yeah, they're good questions to ask, though, and it's interesting once you. I think we all sort of struggled to sort of wrap our heads around the right terminology there. But um, one of the big challenges for me, I is do that- prefer clients in a way because. Um, traditionally, when you provide a service to someone, that person is a client. Like if you think about counsellors or doctors, or you know, oh, doctors, I suppose use patients, but um, uh, you know, uh, other people in the medical sphere often refer to clients. Do we have to use? See, my my provocation might be: Do we have to use? The terms at all? Why can't we just say children and families? I'm pretty sure that's all I yeah. use. I don't use yeah. clients. I don't use customers. I yeah. get children and families. Mm. I, yeah. I agree. I like that. Oh, okay. Let's go crazy. Woo. All right. Well, that was the early education show, everyone. We hope you had a good time. Oh, no. we've, we've got a few more questions. I don't think I don't think we were totally focusing on just terminology. <laughs> a very good point and a very good segue, Leanne, to maybe take a bit of a broader view about, I guess, the, the sector and the context as a whole. So the reason we're having this discussion at all and the reason why there would be uh, very good arguments for saying the families are the customers. I think we should. I, I should be clear here. Um, I, I fundamentally understand and and uh, 
see the argument for why families are the customers of early childhood. They are paying the fees with government subsidies. So that I guess the next question we need to have a look at is that the role of the government and the role of the subsidies that come into the sector, either directly to the family as they are um, now or, or, or between the family and the service now, uh, when the new childcare package comes in, all the subsidies will be going directly to the service. Uh, so... How does that, you know, what is that sort of, you know, the childcare benefit, the childcare rebate, and then the childcare subsidy next year? How does that sort of, I guess, twist this question a bit? How does that, um, and potentially make, does it make government the customer of ECEC? Who wants to, who wants to tackle that one? I'll go to Leanne first. I, 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 I tackled Lisa first well, last time. Well, I think, I think this dynamic changed in about, oh, now someone will probably correct me on this, when, um, subsidies were extended to the private sector. I think ninety three, maybe. Yeah, got, yeah, ninety three. Operational subsidy was removed from uh, services, and subsidies were extended to all private services in a an, an international coup of um, linking that to uh, a quality measure. So that was the that was when that first happened, and it happened. It it's never happened. You know, anywhere else. So, well, I think it has now, but that was groundbreaking because there was that link. So, the obviously the idea was that government was saying, "Look, we can't provide all of the care that we need to provide. Therefore, we are going to extend this to the private sector, and we're going to create a, what's called an equal playing field or level level playing field." And in doing that, I think that's where people sometimes don't grasp the thing about subsidies: is that they're actually a business incentive program. That's effectively what they have become because they incentivise people to establish early childhood services. So and that to they, rot. Well, and to rot. You know, and interestingly, the other day, someone told me that they have their child in two different services and one is a not-for-profit and one is a for-profit. I know people think we're always having a go about this and I might be going slightly off track, but... The, she had to choose next year which service to put her child in because she's had to split the care this year because there wasn't a full week available. If she goes to the not-for-profit, it is $18,000 cheaper per year than the for-profit service. So, and I, please tell me that's what she's surprised? choosing. Well, I had to talk her into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the point about it is is that that, the, the subsidies have incentivised people to establish um, services. So does that then who's who's the customer in that transaction? Isn't like I just yeah finally... okay. So what I would say is uh, yeah okay. Um, firstly, um, I, I want to say there's two things I'd say in response <laughs> to that, but I know you'll all laugh at me if I do that. Um, the I think what the government is trying to do, like I see subsidies more as a voucher system so yeah. that they're giving parents choice in which place they choose to use their subsidy. In America, you know, we've got this really clearly with um, what's called charter schools, et cetera, which are basically the same as private um, long daycare services that set up everywhere and people can take their education voucher to those places. The, it, you know, it, there's like heaps of things wrong with that, but it's, it, um, it primarily, it moves it 
it's not about subsidising services. So that's where the second thing, like it does subsidise people to set up businesses, but because that subsidy still belongs to parents, it's not absolutely subsidising people services to set up. If it did, if the money did go directly to services and wasn't linked with parents in any way, shape or form, and this is my second point, if it just went, okay, this is how much it costs to run a, a you know, 80 place service, we will give you this much funding and that, uh, you know, will enable you to make X much profit out of it, it would be a much, much better system because the minute that the government actually funds services directly, they then can control quality. They so can demand quality. So that's what's they happening can... in Norway now. Is that yeah, and Finland as well. Mm. Well, that's yeah. what's happening in the school system here. So, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's the direct benefit yeah. of, of paying for the service instead of doing this ridiculous. You're entirely right, Lisa. It's a voucher system. Uh, which are, you know, fundamentally sort of discredited in the US particularly, um, the fundamental benefit of government is just paying for it and, yes, using taxpayer funds is that there's control and that there's, there's abilities to, um, you know, to change the, you know, what am I trying to say? To use, you know, you know the most recent research to fundamentally up whether we're doing that effectively in Australia at the moment is arguable, but, you know, there's a capacity for government to then, you know, improve and, and, and sort of drive, you know, much better schools when they directly control them rather than relying on this ridiculous sort of nebulous system of payments going in and out at different ways. And I think it's going to become even dodgier with the, with the new system because it's still a payment to families, but it's, it's going to be disguised because it's going directly to services. Yeah. So it de facto makes... Every childcare service, a, a you know, a branch of Centrelink, yeah. as they try and you know sort it out. Yeah. Mm. So I guess. But um, what can I just ask one thing of you both? Do you think that there would be as much um, interest in establishing early childhood services if subsidies to the way they are available now were not available? Well, well, no, well, not not to the extent they are now. There would be some. I mean, this is an argument. Well, I think we've 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 had this discussion maybe in a previous episode, maybe when we talked about sort of the business of early childhood. But the entire notion that um, that the market force can rule in early childhood is is completely wrong, and it's wrong for a very simple and obvious, clear reason, which is that these enormous subsidies are required. If the like bakeries don't require subsidies to sell bread to people, you know that service stations don't wear all, all this kind of stuff the, the early childhood education cannot work in a market-based model there wouldn't be need for these ridiculous subsidies so what so sorry i'm not answering the question you're asking leanne but i think the, the answer is 95 percent no but exactly the same as in the system of mind if someone wants to set up a private independent um you know school or set up a private independent early childhood center and charge you know and and do it as a completely premium product that you know rich people want to pay for then they're, they're they're welcome to. I won't be sending any of my children there. But the 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 question is the system doesn't work as a market-based model. And so, you know, the, yes, the system couldn't work without subsidies, but there doesn't have to be subsidies to make the system work. It could be funded directly. 
And, and if it was funded directly, the incentive wouldn't be there for people to enter the market because the, the as well as controlling, you know, the amount of subsidy that they gave to services, that also the government would also be able to control price. And that would mean that, yeah, which which really comes back would to be. my point about businesses being incentivised. I mean, that was yeah. the that's it's the incentivist. Yeah, except that if we took out the possibility of outrageous profits from everywhere along the line, mm. from developers, from real estate agents, from whatever, um, then you would have a situation where it would be. Yeah, Governments could decide that, you know, a reasonable return on people's investment in a centre might be, say, eight percent a year. Yeah, right? and, that, and that would be, and that would be awesome because we'd be, we'd be, what we'd have is those wonderful services that that are there for who have some values and some really strong orientation. There yeah, around early childhood education. Except that because you were taking out the, you know, the incentive of larger profits, it is very likely that new services wouldn't be developed. Yeah. So what you would have to simultaneously do is have a capital development fund to build new services where they were needed and a planning mechanism to work out where God. they were needed. Um, so... Given that there is all this money floating around in the system and the families are at the end of the day, you know, even though people like me might, might want to argue against it, they're paying for a service. What happens if a family wants you to deliver that service differently? I know we sort of touched on that right at the start. If families are going, I don't want that to happen, I want this to happen, where does that sort of leave services? Do you want to have a go at that one? Uh- so I would say that families need to, that services need to make it clear to families before they enrol how they operate that this is the service we offer. Is this the service you want for your child? This is what we, you know, um, this is what we, we um, you know, this is what we, how we operate. This is our philosophy. This is our core beliefs. This is what we do for children. This is what we don't do. This is how we treat families. This is not how we treat families. I heard um, uh Anthony Saman put it in a beautiful way the other day. He said, choose a lane and stick to it. So if you are clear as a corner shop that you're only selling red ice blocks and someone comes in and says, nah, nah, I want a blue ice block, then you can rightly say to them, go away, we only sell red ice blocks. Likewise, if you make it clear what it is that you're that your service, you know, values and functions and how it operates, then that's what families are buying when they come to it. But on, on, in that context, and I'd be interested in in your view, Liam, as a, as a, you know, as someone who's sort of looking at this every day in services, isn't the intention of the the system, the, the you know, standards, is that families are involved in charting the direction of the service. I know that's not always the reality, but the philosophy is developed in collaboration with families and that might exist for a certain amount of time. So in the best possible world, the families have been involved in the development of that and that's reviewed on a regular basis. So it allows families to have a part of that conversation. 
Yeah, look, they're, they're definitely involved, but this is where, um, and one of the points I probably didn't make effectively in the article I wrote about documentation is that we, we, we always see this as either or. So I make I made the point that, you know, documentation particularly is not for families. They are not the primary audience, but that does not mean they can't have a significant involvement. So I would, I would say it's exactly the same principle with the philosophy. The philosophy is for the service and should be developed by those with the expertise, the qualifications and the knowledge of the children they're working with to lead and drive that process. Now, families absolutely should have a huge amount of involvement, engagement and uh, have a and be respected for their views on on how the, that service should be provided. But at the end of the day, it is the early childhood education service is being you know run by the approved provider and their nominated supervisor and the educators on site in the in the best way possible. Now, um, as long as there is nothing in there that is discriminatory or uh, you know or you know disrespectful or doesn't uphold the principles of the early years learning framework and the national quality standard i entirely agree with lisa that you, you you have to nail your philosophy and you have to be able to stand by it and it's particularly on things like social justice so that you know that indigenous thing is a fantastic example but even for things like you know that i know there are services that would probably you know take a, a particularly strong and principled view on things like uh, you know refugees and the the situation on nauru and manus island now I, I I would as well, but the services that I work with don't have you know that don't have that stated in our philosophy and don't have that particular. We, we we talk about upholding social justice principles, but that is obviously a contentious, challenging, difficult topic. And unless you're going to say right before people enrol, this is our approach to this. If you don't like it, we totally understand. There's a service down the road that might be better for you. But if families are signing up to a service with that being the philosophy, absolutely they can ask it and ask questions of it. But I would absolutely be going. Well, unfortunately, that's how we operate this service. We are a strong social justice service, and this is one of the issues we regularly advocate on and discuss with children. And then families have the choice to decide whether they yeah, enrol or not. But I, I, I agree with you because it is. Yes, you're, you're stating what you stand for. You're stating the values, but. The, it's not static either. So, you know, it's uh, and the, the idea of sort of picking a lane and sticking with it, yep, all, all of those things to me are about the values, the underlying values and the, the um, philosophy that you, with which you undertake that service. But when it comes to actual issues, we won't even know the sorts of issues that we'll be dealing with in, you know, in five years' time <laughs> or whatever. So, when robots have taken our podcasting jobs. Yeah, that. That's right. And so our philosophy will have to be regularly yeah. reviewed. And but of course that, it does, and that's that, part of but, the process. But if it's clear but, to but, begin but with... I just want to finish what I, I've started to say, <laughs> is that the, I think Sorry. that it's about... That, <laughs> Right. I'm being a rambunctious intern, um, <laughs> but it's it, the point is that these things are always negotiated, like it's negotiated territory, I think, and that's why it is about collaboration and about um, not having this sort of static, static agenda about we believe this right now, and you need to understand that we believe this. It's it doesn't mean that the values change or the philosophy necessarily yeah. be to fit that, but I think the issues are going to change. Sorry, finish, point finished. <laughs> Look, they are, but generally if you start off with uh, this is the sort of service that we are, whether it be we're mm. a Christian service that upholds Christian beliefs or we're a left-wing you know, um, radical service that you know believes um, in feminism and gay people's rights and stuff, then 
the discussions that you will have are more likely to be about finer points of how that should be played out yeah. in a service rather than the whole thing. But what if your occupancy goes down? Mm, well, yeah, and that, look, that's probably well, the big question maybe we don't have time to go into a huge amount of detail on. But the, the, what, what I will say is it's very easy for for us to think to sit here and make these big picture points but that is a real concern so if you're if you know if you're turning if families aren't turning up if they're not you know buying what you're selling you know is there an ethical issue with a service you know that does good work closing because they have uh, you know because they're not buying into that service mindset it is it is more challenging than I think we can tackle yeah. in. Well, you've yeah. got to reflect the community that you're in. Yeah. yeah. Because so I just community. do a very quick plug for everyone having another look at their philosophies. I've read so many philosophies that are just bunches of words on a page <laughs> that support things that, of course, every education and care service supports. Like, you know, we believe children should be happy and loved and, you know, <laughs> and you just go, yeah, well, how does that, you know, is that really a philosophy or is that just yeah. a statement of motherhood things? So Absolutely. I reckon everyone needs to relook at their philosophy and, yeah. you know, that's probably a great spot to end on. So thanks for the discussion, you two. This is, I think this is one we could go on with for, for, for a few hours, but we hope we've given some people some things to, to think about and take away. But uh, we'll be wrapping up in a minute with our recommendations, so stay with us. All right, we're back. So, Leanne, will you, uh, surely you haven't got a conversation article for us this week, have you? I have. <gasps> it's good. It's like being back. It's like a nice, comfortable old jumper. Leanne's back doing a recommendation. It's the conversation. Well, this is really in um, in keeping with our conversation, and it's about um, talking about the market of the university and how how universities are using their marketing to recruit students and students are pushing back and saying, hey, you said that you'd do this and I'm not a satisfied Ooh. customer. So I think it's interesting in the context of that. Yeah, and and this is uh, the the position that's put is that there's there's a level of accountability and and students are demanding it. And why are they demanding it? Because they've become customers. But I'll leave people to read that. It's quite an interesting article. Really interesting. Thanks, Leanne. What about you, Lisa? Look, mine is from a parenting website and it's um, called 10 Habits That Infringe on the Rights of Children and How to Change Them. And I know that 90% of long day care services would um, automatically have these habits. They would never do, sorry, would never have these habits. They'd never do the, the kind of things that the article talks about, like taking things off children or talking about children in front of them. But it's so easily written and I know that, Although 90% of services wouldn't do these things, there are 10% of services that fall into bad habits and do these things routinely. So just a really easy, simple article um, to read, to share, especially for students um, that haven't worked in the sector before. And it was like it was also a very good reminder for me as a mother of um, an adult child with a disability about things that I fall into doing that really do infringe upon her rights. Mm. Mm, what an interesting piece. Yeah, Fantastic thanks, yeah. on a parenting website. 
And then my recommendation is a is a blog. It's called the Good Childhood Blog, which is being published by the fantastic organisation from Victoria, Berry Street, which I had the uh, good fortune of visiting a few years back. Um, and again, I'll, I'll leave it for people to go and investigate and have a look at, but it's a series of articles uh, looking at that idea of what makes a good childhood and they're using research and they've, sort of, they've got a really good, you know, really sort of short, clear, simple blogs that people can read in, in quick settings on a range of topics. So I'd, I'd, I, th- I think the blog might have wrapped up now. It's a bit hard to tell, but uh, there's about seven or eight different posts there that are really good and be great conversation starters for the staff room or a staff meeting. So that's my recommendation. So we're done for another week so we'll be back uh hopefully next week assuming we're still chugging along and have done our homework and we'll have a bit of a chat about the ministers and secretaries rules but until then it's bye from me and from me and from me you have been listening to the early education show hosted by lisa bryant leanne gibbs and leah mcnicholas and produced by leah mcnicholas Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the support the show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.